I am Jim Grant. I founded Grant's Interest Rate Observer almost, gee, almost 35 years ago. And uh, I am glad that you are interested enough in what we do to be listening. And I'm with uh, the deputy editor of, of Grant's named Evan Lorenz. Evan, good morning. Good morning. Um, uh, we thought that we would begin what we hope will be a series of podcasts by telling you about uh, who we are, what we do, why we do it, and uh, how we go about doing it. Uh, so I will begin with the archaeological material, Evan. Um, uh, Thirty odd years ago, in fact, 35 years ago, I decided that what the world needed was something else to read. Now, this is a rash assumption on my part. The world seems to have more than enough. Uh, certainly it does. It did then. It certainly has more now. But I thought that what the world specifically needed was uh, a publication every two weeks that would, uh, uh, that would comb through uh, the signs and portents of monetary policy, central banking, and interest rates, some of the most important prices in the world of finance, and if not predict every squiggle and movement, at least help my readers understand more than they otherwise would uh, the world of credit and of bonds and other interest rate sensitive securities. That was the plan. And I thought further uh, that we at Grants, then it was myself and uh, my part-time secretary named Liz Haldigan, I thought that we would highlight both uh, the, the best things being done on Wall Street and also the worst. We would have uh, long ideas, we would have short ideas, we would have the best writing and the funniest cartoon. That was the plan. Um, and to some degree, I think I can say, as the disinterested and purely objective proprietor of grants, that we have achieved that. Uh, and I know Evan, as a deputy editor of grants, you might agree with some of that. This is not, not, not your assent. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so what do we do for a living? I, um, I'm going to ask my uh, right-hand man, Evan, to tell us and remind me how we go about uh, gathering up ideas and presenting them to the world. Evan, how do you work it? We publish every two weeks uh, on a Tuesday, and we release to the market uh, after the market close every Wednesday at 4 o'clock. On Wednesday morning, we come in with a fresh slate and start looking for ideas. And we look for ideas just about like every other investor. We comb Bloomberg through our screens. We uh, go through uh, the news to see if there's any interesting headlines that pick our interest. Or we talk to uh, grants readers or other investors to see if there's something interesting happening in the market that's not being well covered. After that, we start digging in uh, and... Uh, calling companies, reading transcripts, uh, calling suppliers, talking to other investors in a company, calling up analysts to cover the stock, and try to form a 360-degree mosaic to understand what exactly are the issues, what has been priced into the market, is there an interesting um, story that has not um, yet been expressed in the share price of the stock or the bond that we're actually um, working on. Yeah. If we think that at the end of um, two weeks of work that the story has merit uh, and that there is something interesting to do for our readers, we um, write that up into a memo, which uh, we then, which I then hand to Jim, and Jim makes sound much, much better at the end product. We publish, and then we begin again. Yeah, that we do. You know, the, 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 um, uh, the great topic that mm -hmm. I have been struggling with uh, um, over the course of these, uh, almost three and a half decades is the great cosmic topic of the future. The fathomless future, a closed book is the future, and yet it is all that investors really cared about. You know, they, they have to know what's going to happen because that's what markets are about, what is going to happen. What has happened is of interest to historians and I think to a degree to the thoughtful investor, but it's the future that counts and yet we can't know the future. Evan, how do you deal with this paradox? 
Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna, I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna uh, uh, exercise my rights as a proprietor, and to say um, that what I think we do is to, uh, is first and foremost to acknowledge that we don't know the future, and then acknowledging that fact. Not everyone regards that as is so very helpful, but acknowledging that great truth, we observe in the present how the world is is as it were handicapping the future right we can't we can't know what's going to happen under the uh, the ever so interesting um, uh, and already flummoxing re uh, administration of donald j trump but we can at least see how the world is set up this is one of the great phrases in investing what's the setup so uh, uh, take the specific moment so here it is late in january of 2017 is it evan yes ah, okay and um and uh, the Trump administration has been in business for what, about four or five days. And uh, the New York Times on Monday led the paper with what it called a news analysis, not the news, but a news analysis, which proceeded to hang crepe over the administration of Donald Trump as if it had already failed. And Trump, here it was Trump, scratching around for office supplies. It didn't even start it. They were saying that he was going to fail. Well, he might fail. So we can observe that... Um, the sentiment in the press is almost universally negative. We can observe that, uh, however, paradoxically, um, the stock market is is very high, not necessarily very, very high, except that we have to reserve that particular description for perhaps later in the cycle, but it's at, what, 20 times trailing earnings in the S&P. And uh, when Reagan was coming in, it was at nine times. So what we observe that the world is setting up uh, seemingly for the success of Donald Trump, whereas, whereas in the past it had set up for the, uh, the non-success, indeed perhaps for the failure of what president that turned out to be pretty successful. So that's, that's what I mean by uh, making some compromise with the present and the future. The world wants to know, our readers want to know the future. We don't know the future, but we can observe and we can, uh, we can as they say on Wall Street, fade a consensus. Now, Evan, tell us, tell the, our listeners how we go about fading a consensus of opinion, a hard-formed uh, uh, phalanx of people insisting that one outcome is the most likely. The wonderful thing about the markets is you get a price every day and you can see what is that priced into a security. You can also do a little footwork and find out what people believe and find out what the consensus is. Then you can ask yourself, how could that be wrong? Um, just two weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal uh, published a headline, Investors Bolt Mexico as Peso uh, Enters Freefall. It's clear that people wanted out of Mexico because Trump is going to build a big, beautiful wall, because Trump is going to put in place a big border tax. And it seemed like investors had begun to price that in. But in, in that rush to leave you know, an unfavored market, sometimes a lot of value is left behind. And sometimes events don't work out as people imagine. Um, Perhaps Trump will build a wall. Maybe he won't. Maybe he will put a border tax in. Maybe a border tax is already priced into stocks or more than priced into stocks. Or into the peso. Or into the peso. Um, and by doing a little uh, legwork and kind of digging into the various uh, securities and issues, you could sometimes, you, while not predict the future, find stocks that have already discounted all the bad news and then some. And if you um, buy those securities, if the worst comes to pass, you'll do okay. If anything surprises to the upside, you'll do more than okay. Well, this, this reminds me, this particular approach reminds me of uh, the work we did, and especially my then associate Dan Gertner mm -hmm. did <coughs> in the, uh, the, uh, the mid-aughts, starting about 2005 and six. 
uh, we began to comb through the documents pertaining to uh, these very fancy um, mortgage contraptions, uh, collateralized mortgage obligations, and other such instruments that uh, packaged up uh, securities and purportedly um, uh, presented investors with a very sound, uh, very sound risk-reward proposition. Uh, because these mortgages, after all, were collateralized by American single-family houses, which houses never, never in the history of recorded finance lost their value all at the same time. That was a known known, it seemed. But as we looked through these structures with the help of our readers, what we could see is that uh, uh, they were priced for uh, a more or less perfect outcome. They were selling at 100 cents on the dollar, sometimes 101 cents on the dollar. And if everything went right, the investor might get back 101 cents, or perhaps 100 cents, plus interest. That was the, that was the upside. But if, as uh, we thought, and indeed as turned out to be the case, if there was something structurally wrong with the securities, and if there were a big, fat, ugly bubble, to borrow from the phraseology of our president, if that were the case, then these securities could deliver not 100 cents of the dollar, but uh, maybe 30, 40, 50 cents, or much less than those figures. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we couldn't uh, anticipate the great financial crisis. We saw some of it coming, but mostly we could see that in these securities there was a most asymmetric, as they say, a most asymmetric risk-reward proposition, and that because the consensus was so hardened in an optimistic vein concerning housing, uh, that we were, we were kind of, as Lloyd Blankfein said facetiously, we were kind of doing God's work by investigating the alternatives. Yeah. At the same time, Grants also proposed another trade that worked out spectacularly well but got a little less press. Uh, in the mid-aughts, um, most credit investors began pricing in convergence in the European sovereign bonds. The idea that because uh, Greece, Spain, Italy, and Germany were all part of the euro, that the yields on the uh, sovereign bonds for each of these countries should converge to the um, yield of the boon. Uh, Grants at the time actually proposed that credit risk in these countries still existed, um, things could go wrong, and suggested buying uh, CDS on Greek bonds for a handful of basis points. Uh, CDS meaning? Uh, credit default swaps. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, contracts that pay if uh, things go bad for a sovereign issuer. Um, and those contracts paid off yeah. quite handsomely for investors who actually uh, executed that trade. Yeah. Well, we, we, we try to uh, be even-handedly opportunistic, uh, meaning... Um, uh, seeking out opportunity in excess to the upside and seeking it out in excess to the downside. That is to say, uh, trying our best to exploit extremes, unreasoned extremes, both of optimism and pessimism. And uh, uh, sometimes we do that, sometimes we fail at that. The difficulty, mostly, is that uh, the market is not at an extreme, right? It's, it's neither uh, unreasonably rich nor uh, fantastically value-laden. Uh, so you have to take a much more mar marginal approach to life as in, in, in finance. You know, most Tuesdays are like most Wednesdays, which mm -hmm. are neither crisis-racked um, uh, nor um, uh, manic to the upside. Mm -hmm. um, uh, since you have been here, Evan, it's been well nigh five years, I think? A little over. Yeah. What has been, in, in your recollection at the moment, the most interesting and gratifying story you've worked on? I think the most interesting one for me, because we were able to mine it for multiple ideas, was um, because of the existence of Dodd-Frank, the um, regulator for um, thrift and saving banks was going to disappear. 
Um, as a result, a lot of um, thrifts were converting their charter to commercial banks. Uh, and when they convert, they were converting at prices well below book, sometimes at a 30 to 40 percent discount. None of these banks were very large. They had market caps between like 50 million to a couple hundred million. But these were banks that had rock solid balance sheets, um, had come through the financial crisis with flying colors. And while they might have been expensive on a price to earnings basis, they were never really run for a profit motive. And you had this set change that was coming in the regulations that you knew was coming. And you saw this coming wave of banks that had applied to flip their charters. And when they flipped their charters, the market priced them as if they would always be entities that were not run for commercial profit. However, a magical thing happens when you tell a CEO, okay, you're going to make a lot of money if this bank, if your, if your company starts earning a lot of money. And these thrifts did one of two things. They either started generating a profit after years of being run for the benefit of their um, their mutual uh, depositors, or they got bought out by larger banks at a premium to book. And it was... A, a very rich, rich vein of um, ideas that was easy to find, um, that the market completely ignored, but that there was some certainty because of the regulatory change that had already been put into place. And you could actually find numerous stocks um, that uh, that you could buy because of this. Wow. Well, tell us also about uh, Valiant Pharmaceuticals. <laughs> that was one of your shining moments. We got this idea. This uh, I heard this idea from Jim Chanos, the, a renowned short seller. I mentioned it, uh, and uh, and I came in the office and said, uh, Evan, take a look at uh, VRX. That was a ticker. And what did you find? Valiant was an interesting company. Um, they it is. It's, it's still it's It still, still is. It's still extent. <laughs> it still has a share price above uh, 10 bucks right now. Valiant Pharmaceuticals was a company where looking at the share price and the expectations discounted into it, you could see that it was loved. Its shareholder roster was gold-plated and included uh, famous investors like Rain and Quinef. Um, when you started looking at the numbers, though, you started scratching your head. Um, the published figures told you very little of what the company was doing. The company put forward non-GAAP figures that looked spectacular but excluded a lot of the cost of actually doing business. Uh, the company didn't invest into its pipeline of drugs. Rather, it acquired them from the street. Um, however, when it went to push out its non-GAAP figures, it excluded the cost of actually acquiring these drugs. Um, if you did a little math, it looked like its organic growth was negative, and it looked like, um, and after doing some work and talking to people in the street, that the reason it was able to generate such good returns initially from uh, its acquisitions was it dramatically raised prices. It was kind of a sugar rush after they made an acquisition that um, pushed up the earnings of acquired companies at the expense of volume. The problem in the pharmaceutical industry is patents have a finite life, usually around 10 years. So it was buying these short-lived income streams, um, uh, hurting volumes, and kind of excluding the cost of actually doing this from its accounting, all the while running up an incredible amount of debt that if it uh, that it would have trouble servicing uh, if it couldn't keep growing earnings. So, so it was on a price, treadmill. Uh, at what share price did we first uh, say this was not the thing to own and indeed the thing to short? We set it around 145 bucks on and its it way went, to 250 bucks right. before well, it this, hit 14. Yes. Well, um, listeners, this speaks to another difficulty <laughs> in being contrary-minded and in sometimes being, shall we say, gently, should we say, early. Uh, sometimes one gets one's face ripped mm -hmm. off. That is a term of art in finance. Um, and, uh, you know, whatever pinpoint timing is, we exhibit it rarely and by accident here at Grants. Mm -hmm. We are uh, attentive to the fundamentals, and sometimes uh, the fundamentals take a, a while to, to validate themselves in the marketplace or to find expression in price. 
if there is any one constant over the course of these almost 35 years, it is the editor's uh, opposition, I was going to say skepticism, but uh, 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 complete and utter uh, opposition to the doctrines of the Federal Reserve. That's, that is the, uh, the thread of continuity in our business, in our publication. Implacable critics we are of the idea that uh, a central bank ought to uh, create credit out of thin air to manipulate interest rates and thereby uh, to improve our lives in finance and in our daily work. I think that uh, um, that doctrine is on its face fanciful and the results stemming from that doctrine I think have been on balance very harmful. So we uh, are uh, inveterate and, um, and rather stern critics of the Fed. I, I feel sometimes like the uh, editor of the Chicago Tribune uh, tossing verbal brickbats at the Purple Gang during the gangster era in Chicago. The, the gangsters would never answer you, never even take a shot at you. They just, you know, they pretend you didn't exist. So the Fed has, has taken that stance towards us. But I have every confidence that um, as the years wear on that our views will be vindicated and the Fed will get back to the business of, um, of sound money as opposed to uh, a glorified kind of or a, or a, a half-baked kind of central planning. We publish every two weeks in a long-form journalism at a time that the market mostly digests 140 characters or less instantaneously. What do you view, the, I guess, the value of well-thought-out and timely research in an age where all analysis is, you know, within the, the second it's, uh, an event happens? Oh, what a great question, Evan. The world um, seems, to be, uh, seems to be migrating towards ever shorter and, I, dare I say, more superficial modes of communication. Um, and... Uh, and narrative, and we, um, I guess, kind of bloody-mindedly have stuck with what we have always done, which is to delve deep into topics. Uh, some of our analyses run to, uh, say, 12 double-spaced pages. That's the, the term paper you always hated writing in school. Uh, some of them a bit longer, some of them shorter, but uh, we don't shy away from depth when depth seems necessary to explore not only uh, what we regard as the proper analysis, but also to give due weight to the contrary evidence and to try to, uh, to address that evidence. Uh, I, I, I am optimistic that uh, one of these days we will be the sole surviving purveyor of long-form journalism, and then we'll have, the, we'll have like a monopoly, like the Fed. The government won't en endorse it or protect us, but I, th I think that uh, we're onto something here, Evan. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, this uh, this is about, this is Grant's on on tape. This is the this is the sound of Grant's interest rate observer. We publish every two weeks. We, I guess, produce about seventy five hundred words of finely wrought prose, a few numbers besides, some pretty pictures, and a funny cartoon. Uh, many people think that it's very hard reading. I think that they uh, exaggerate. I think it's uh, actually it's very easy reading, and um, I am bold to say it's. Uh, it's uh, uh, necessary reading. So we thank you, Evan and I do, thank you for mm -hmm. listening.